Welcome to PwC's Next in Health podcast. I'm Ben Isker, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute. And today I have Trina Tadaros with me, who leads HRI's Regulatory Center. Welcome, Trina. Thanks so much, Ben. Great to be here. Well, Trina, we have a few things we wanted to cover today. Let's start with something that we hear in the news quite a bit right now, which are vaccine passports, and they often have a digital aspect to them. But I think you're about to give us a little history lesson on vaccine passports and really how long they've been around. That's right. We're hearing a lot about it, mostly because New York State has rolled out its Excelsior Pass, which is a smartphone-based app where you can carry around your proof of vaccination and show it to businesses that are requiring that, not just your vaccination, but also a negative test. And it's sort of an easier way than carrying around that little CDC card or a printout of your negative test results. So this is kind of the digital version of that. It's called the Excelsior Pass. And New York State has been rolling this out. And we're hearing a little bit about the sort of complexities, actually, of using the app and some of the difficulties with it, but also the usefulness of it. So that has sort of sparked a big conversation in the country about vaccine passports. And the thing about them are, is that they are not new. They've been around since at least the 19th century. Back in the 1890s, there was a plague vaccine that was developed in Russia, and proof of vaccination was required in order to go to some pilgrimage sites in India. There were requirements to prove that you had been vaccinated against smallpox in the 19th century to board some ships. When airplanes started flying around, the same thing. Some countries would require proof of smallpox vaccinations to board airplanes. So this is not new at all. The World Health Organization, you may, if you've traveled to some countries, you might have had to produce the so-called yellow card that shows that you've been vaccinated against yellow fever. And so it's not that big a surprise that we're seeing this pop up around the globe. Israel prominently has rolled out its green pass to prove vaccination against SARS-CoV-2 to get into some businesses. And so now the United States, we are sort of grappling with this as well. And it's kind of a mixed bag so far. There is not a huge surge in these, but New York State is sort of stepping forward first, and that's really sparking a lot of conversation. And unsurprisingly, it has some controversy attached to it and some politics. And I think, Ben, you know something about the politics around these vaccine passports in the U.S. right now. Well, that's right, Trina. I mean, they're not without controversy. And we, in fact, we've already seen two state governors issue executive orders about requirements for vaccination status, both in Florida and in Texas. Texas Governor Greg Abbott's executive order actually prohibits government agencies from requiring a vaccine passport. But what's interesting about it, it also brings in the private sector with a requirement that if you get any kind of government money or funding, then you're not allowed to require them as well. And so like many things that we've covered, Trina, throughout the pandemic, there can be a political element to them and very much a patchwork of state-by-state requirements around them. So I think yet to be seen how these play out in all parts of the country. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of what we're seeing happen in the private sector in general, this patchwork 
quilt of different requirements or even questions about them. And one of the things I want to talk about just a bit around what are employers doing right now in terms of vaccinations? And in the United States, under the law, an employer can require or mandate an employee gets vaccinated. Now, there are certain exceptions to that. And I think the question that I've heard a lot from business leaders are, are other organizations requiring these? Should we consider that? How do we keep our employees safe? And how do we get people back to work more quickly? And I would say what we've been seeing is actually not very many organizations are requiring vaccines or mandating them, including health organizations. And I think that would surprise a lot of our listeners, but there's very few hospitals or health systems or others that have had a vaccine mandate. And one of the reasons is because there's a little bit of a question in the research on what is the ultimate effect of these mandates. And some studies and some research has shown that you may actually have the opposite effect where it actually discourages people from getting vaccinated or they feel like it's overly burdensome, a government mandate. So you kind of engender this anti-rule following. And so it can really have the opposite effect. And it's really one of the reasons why we've seen employers really talk about this and try to figure it out, but haven't many have not acted on any kind of mandate. What they've done instead is started to think about how they're going to bring people back to work and keep them safe and how much of the future workforce will be at home versus in an office versus some sort of hybrid model. And that's actually where we see a lot of this discussion happening right now. Trina, another issue that I know you have been covering in a very detailed manner over the last year is the question of tests. And you've always talked about the DIY test, the do-it-yourself test that people can do at home. Well, I think we've got some news around that. And I was hoping you could enlighten our listeners on what's the latest on these at-home tests. Yeah, yeah. We've been talking about this at PwC since early last summer when Dr. Michael Minna from Harvard went on This Week in Virology, a podcast that has been covering the pandemic very closely. And what Michael Minna said was, look, if we all had very cheap, rapid diagnostic tests that we could do at home, then we really could get this pandemic under control very quickly. In other words, if you could test your whole family every single day and get a good read on whether someone in your household was positive, then you can make decisions about, you know, maybe he shouldn't go to school today, or maybe I shouldn't even go out to the grocery store today. Maybe we shouldn't go visit grandpa today, things like that. And that enough people would stay home based on what the test results showed that you would really drive down transmission very quickly. And fellow researchers put out studies modeling this and started this big campaign to get the FDA to consider authorizing these cheap, rapid DIY tests. And so there has been this drumbeat since then to do this. And the FDA has taken it up. And recently, they authorized three rapid DIY tests that can be done at home without needing a doctor's prescription 
I will say that they are not cheap. So these are not tests that are under a dollar each. Most households could not afford to do all of their household members every single day, but they are here in terms of being able to do them at home. And so this is a step forward in terms of helping get the pandemic under control. The folks who have been advocating for this would say it's also a step forward for future pandemics because it opens up the door to authorizing tests that are screening tests that don't need a doctor's intervention to sort of order up. And so this is, especially around diagnostic testing, a pretty big deal. And we should see starting to appear on pharmacy store shelves, on retailer store shelves, tests that you can buy and bring home. The prices, I don't know yet. I know that they will likely be more than a dollar each, at least at first. But we might see a lot of competition and maybe the prices will come down. So I think, you know, one of the things that this whole DIY, do it at home testing makes me think about is research that we've been doing for quite a few years showing that Americans are really eager to do some DIY healthcare at home or at least closer to the home. And I wonder, Ben, if you could talk a little bit about what we've been finding for quite a few years and even our most recent research on that. Well, I think your mention of the DIY test is the perfect segue to this because it does bring up the larger strategic question about consumers in America. And that is actually, where do they want to get their health care? And one of the things that we've seen throughout the pandemic is that new sites of care are becoming very popular. In the previous podcast, we talked a lot about virtual care. Well, just over the last few months, some of our survey data has shown that about 4% of consumers said that they had a doctor, nurse, or other clinician visit their home to provide care. That is an incredible change. Now, small percentage, small base, but it's an incredible change that we now have that many people in the United States, 4% of the American population saying we've had a clinician actually come into the home to provide care. Now, if we went back to the 1930s or 40s or 50s, that would be a very normal way to seek care, but it certainly hasn't been in the modern age. Well, here's what's interesting about the data. So we ask consumers, how willing would you be to use DIY care or have a clinician actually visit your home? And 85% of consumers said, you know what? I would be very interested in DIY care for a strep or flu test or some sort of remote monitoring. 78% said they'd be interested in that home care or DIY care for a chronic care visit. 77% said that they would like the same for a sick visit or injury, 75% for a wellness visit or physical. I think when you kind of connect all those dots together, what it says is the U.S. consumers are incredibly interested in having more convenient care, closer to home and often inside the home. Now, Trina, you mentioned one other thing at the top. You said we're seeing consumers seek care in non-traditional settings. And the home, which I just described, is one of those. And you're absolutely right. Our consumer data actually shows additional non-traditional care sites that are getting lots of use. So one of the things I mentioned before were virtual visits. Virtual visits have basically doubled between pre-pandemic and now. Urgent care visits have increased to those urgent care sites, those urgent care clinics, which are often closer to people's homes. Retail care clinic visits have increased by 40% during the course of the pandemic. Again, trying to get people closer into a more convenient place. 
So regardless of what type it is, whether it's virtual, whether it's clinics, or whether it's actually bringing clinicians in the care, I expect we're going to see an incredible change just in the physical and virtual infrastructure of our health system that the pandemic has really blown open, that we don't need to seek care in the ways that we have before. There's lots of more accessible ways to do that going forward. So lots to keep up with there, and we'll be tracking that closely. You know, we never leave an episode, I shouldn't say never, but we often don't leave an episode without talking a bit about where we are on vaccines. So could you give us the vaccine update, Trina? Yeah, I mean, this is one of my favorite things to talk about on this because it's been such consistent good news in the U.S. We're in mid-April and this past weekend, we've had record days of number of doses given in a day. And after so many months of very grim news. It's wonderful to talk about this campaign going so well. So as of mid-April, we have about 120 million Americans who've received at least one dose, including more than 72 million who are fully vaccinated. That's about 22% of the total population of the U.S. fully vaccinated, about 36% having received at least one dose. And the really extraordinary number to me is that 78.5% of the population who are over the age of 65 have received at least one dose, and 61% are fully vaccinated who are over the age of 65. So these are the people that are the most vulnerable to the worst outcomes of COVID-19, and that is a really extraordinary accomplishment. We also are getting some great news about the efficacy of at least one of the messenger RNA vaccines against COVID-19 in adolescents 12 to 15 years of age. And you might recall that right now we have at least one vaccine authorized for 16 plus, and then the other two are authorized for 18 plus. So now we're all kind of watching for this next tranche of Americans to be able to get vaccinated this 12 to 15 years of age. And recently, one of the pharmaceutical companies came out with a statement looking at phase three trial data in adolescents 12 to 15 years, 2,200 adolescents in total in the study. And they found 18 cases of symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infection in the placebo group. So these are the kids that got saline in the shot and zero cases in the vaccine group which means that what they showed was 100% vaccine efficacy against symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infection in these adolescents, which is incredibly encouraging results. We also got results from the same pharmaceutical company looking at phase three data in symptomatic cases of COVID-19 through six months. So this kind of helps answer the question, how long does it last? How long does the efficacy last at least through six months? And what they found was 850 cases in the placebo group and 77 in the vaccine group, which is a vaccine efficacy of over 90% through six months. And when they looked at cases in South Africa in particular, they found nine cases in the placebo group and zero in the vaccine group. And the majority of the strains, when they sequenced them, looking at which variant was responsible, they only sequenced six out of nine. This was sort of an exploratory analysis. Six out of the nine were the B1351, which is one of the variants of concern that has most worried researchers. And so these two studies are very encouraging going forward. And we know that that pharmaceutical company actually 
filed for its EUA for adolescents recently. And so perhaps early summer, we'll start to see, or maybe in the next couple of months, we'll start to see adolescents 12 to 15 also get vaccinated. So wonderful to deliver a lot of good news there all in one bite. Well, Trina, it's a perfect way to cap off the podcast with just a little bit of good news. Always appreciated. For more on these topics and other health industry insights driven by policy, innovation, and care delivery changes, please visit our website at pwc.com forward slash HRI. Until next time, this has been Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.